This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Adam Scott. He is Web Development Lead at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where he focuses on building open source tools. He's also authored a series of free ebooks for O'Reilly on the topic of ethical web development, the most recent of which is titled Collaborative Web Development. Adam has also presented the online training course Web Apps That Work Everywhere for Everyone and the video Introduction to Modern Front-End Development. You can find out more about all these things at Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com for more details, and we'll have links in the show notes that accompany this episode. We'll talk to Adam about the principles of ethical web development, making web applications work everywhere, the importance of open source, and much more. Enjoy the show. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. First, what do you mean when you use the term ethical web development? Yeah, uh, so it's certainly a loaded term, and I think a lot of people bring a lot of different interpretations to the word ethics. Uh, but really, the way I think about it is that as web developers, we make a lot of decisions for our users. Um, as we all spend more and more of our lives interacting with um, both our social lives and just core work and uh, life functions through the through the web, uh, the choices that developers make can have a big impact on our lives. So it's really just being aware of that potential for impact and making user-centered choices. I, I think of it almost as analogous to the, the world of user experience design, where it's almost bringing that user experience design mindset to the world of web development. You've talked about how there are still many people around the world who don't have or can't afford high-speed internet and that resource-heavy design of some websites limits options for those users. So what can a developer do to make sure their site is accessible? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things. And it's easy to think about, uh, we can say, you know, there's, there's folks certainly in, in other countries that don't have access to broadband or live in a really rural part of the world. Um, but that's also true in developed nations. You know, we both live in the United States. Um, I know my grandmother lives in a very rural area and relies on a, a 3G connection to connect to the internet through a tablet. Um, she kind of came online. Uh, so it really can impact users no matter where our target demographic is located. Uh, and so, I, you know, I really think a big part of that is is minimizing the size of, of the websites or web applications that we serve to users, uh, making them performant, perhaps bringing offline ability to them so that flaky connections aren't, aren't hugely impactful to their user experience. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that we can do as we try to balance that um, and, and work with the idea of users not using our apps in ideal conditions all the time. What about accessibility for people with disabilities? What, uh, what can a developer do there? Sure. I, I think there's a, a certain mindset we can bring to developing for accessibility and really um, aiming to provide things that work for, for all users. Um, so it's easy to kind of fall down into a trap of accessibility means um, making something work with screen readers or accessibility means using the tab key. And certainly that's a big part of it, um, but it, it's around making uh, building web apps that work well for everyone. Uh, there's a great, Tim Berners-Lee had a great quote that I'll, I'll mangle, but he, he talked about how the web provides uh, access for everyone to all these resources and information, but also provides everyone access to other people that, that they may not always have access to. So it, it's really a leveling field. So whenever we, we approach building our apps in an accessible way. We're providing a level playing field for everyone regardless. And I think a, a, the biggest, most important part of that that I tend to try to really promote is not tacking on accessibility at the end. 
Uh, so I've been on lots of project teams where that becomes like a QA aspect of the of the product that we're building. Um, and it, it's great. It's well-intentioned. You know, we kind of go through a round of accessibility testing at the end and we do some testing, we make some changes or we don't make changes. We you know decide that that's going to be too hard or too prohibitive to change because we've already gone down this. Uh, down a path that's inaccessible. Um, so bringing accessibility to the front of the process, uh, running tests, there's great checklists and automated tooling that's available out there that folks can integrate into their development process to really uh, aim to do accessibility from, from the start of a project rather than just at the end. Well, what are some testing strategies that you can use to, to test accessibility? Probably the most straightforward. There's There's a couple of great checklists that exist out there um, the Ally Project, that's A11Y Project, uh, is a great resource. They have a pretty straightforward, simple checklist that um, for for websites or simple applications, I think really provides a good foundational understanding of, of the needs. Then the, another great website is webaim.org. They provide a much more thorough checklist that aims to meet the standards of the WCAG 2.0 AA guidelines, which are which is a long way of saying what the um, kind of the, the the standard for good accessibility is. So they aim to provide a checklist for that. So I think checklists are a great way to just kind of go through and review things. Um, but there's also some nice tooling, some automated tooling. One I really like is called Pally, P-A-1-1-Y. is an automated tool that you can build into your build process to run accessibility tests against your web app. So you can, if you're using continuous integration tools, it can be part of that build flow. It can run when your tests run and kind of just be a continuous thing. So you're alerted as soon as you're breaking these these accessibility rules. And automated testing can't cover everything, but it certainly at least then gives you some continuous information about accessibility and lets you know if you're going too far astray. How important is progressive enhancement? Can And can you give us a quick example maybe of, of how an app can be progressively enhanced? Sure. Um, I think... Progressive enhancement in, in 2017 can be sort of a loaded term. I, I think a lot of folks think of progressive enhancement as make it work without JavaScript. And I think that certainly is part of it, but isn't necessarily all of it. Um, developer Jeremy Keith, he gave a talk where he defined progressive enhancement. He, he said it's starting with the simplest technology to solve the problem and then building up from there. So that doesn't always mean no JavaScript, but it certainly means building something that's as simple as possible that can be fall that users can fall back to and then building up on top of on top of that. And again, it's a process. So starting starting simple, building on top of that, ensuring that um, going back to some of the network things that whatever the network condition is, if resources fail to download, if a browser is outdated, that users are going to be able to complete the core functionality of the application or of the site. So really thinking about what is the core thing that I want my users to be able to achieve and making sure that that works regardless of, of anything else. I also wanted to ask you about inclusive forms and, and making sure that one's site features inclusive forms. How important is this and what kind of considerations do you have to keep in mind when designing forms? Sure. I think there's a couple of, of, of big things to think about with forms. Uh, the first one I can mind are names. Um, I have a very common Western name. We have both my first name and my last name are just common names. Um, so I never have, I never encounter problems with forms. I have a standard first name, last name form uh, format, but certainly that's not the case for every user. Uh, there's a whole, you know, there's lots of different types of names. There's names that are, you know, different naming patterns, names that follow, uh, 
you know, have more than I, I'm Adam Scott, but there's certainly names that have multiple, uh, multiple spaces in them, have special characters. And a lot of times forums won't take those types of names into account. So it'll kind of won't, won't allow any special characters. We're, we're worried about SQL injections or, or some security feature or will require a first name and a last name input form. That's probably the most common form format. Um, but the name might not fit into that type of format or how someone identifies might not fit into that format. And so I think taking that into consideration, there's no black and white answer there. But certainly, you know, some websites will just ask what you'd like to be called. So they may require legally a first name, last name format, but they might ask what you'd like to be called. Or uh, they don't kind of remove all the spaces from from in between your names or turn special characters into like different ASCII characters. So they kind of get garbled in the output. So I think just being careful with, with your users' names and taking into consideration that every name isn't isn't like your own is a is a great first step. Um, the the other aspect I think of building inclusive forms is is gender options. So often we ask for gender. We might just have a checkbox male female. Uh, but I think there's certainly you know many people uh, don't identify as simply a male female gender. Uh, and there's certainly other options that can be included. Both Google and Facebook do a nice job of this. They they give a third kind of other option mm-hmm. that allows people to enter in the gender that they identify most with. Uh, and I believe they both auto-complete to other options, um, but it also provides a space for just, you know, a empty text input. Uh, and there's also a prefer not to say option too, because mm-hmm. it's, um, I know we're maybe trying to collect date, useful data, but, you know, we want to allow our users to give us the data they're comfortable giving us. Well, moving to the area of security and privacy, uh, you've said in, in one of your ebooks that web developers represent the first line of defense in protecting users' data and privacy. So there's a significant responsibility there. But of course, security is such a large and complicated topic. What steps can a developer take to fulfill his or her responsibility about security and privacy? A big aspect of, of security, in terms of just security, is just being aware of common attack vectors. So the OWASP, top 10, they provide a top 10 list of most common attack vectors. It's useful to just be aware of what those are. And I think one of the important aspects is to build on things that are are well-grounded and uh, have been have a strong security background. Um, so it can be tempted to sort of roll our own authentication or roll our own encryption or do something really, really interesting and fun. But if it hasn't been thoroughly vetted, thoroughly used, it kind of isn't always potentially opens up a new security threat. Uh, so being aware of what's out there, what has gone through strong security checks, using the really, um, you know, building our web, if we're building web apps using strong, uh, well, well-tested libraries when we're doing that are, are a great thing. Uh, and just being a, bringing a critical eye to how, what we're incorporating into our projects, into the code that we're using, into the open source libraries that we're including into our code, uh, so that we're trying to minimize potential threats to our users. And that that's all just considering the security. Uh, and certainly security is a topic that is is not simple. And, and, and folks, you know, there are people that are much smarter than me that spend their whole careers considering the security of, of software development and web application development. Uh, but as day-to-day developers, it's, it's very useful for us to just have that general awareness, partner with those experts when when we can. You've outlined four principles of ethical web development, and we've talked about two of them, accessibility for everyone and privacy and security. Let's talk about the other two. Um, one is that web applications should work everywhere. Talk about that. 
Sure. I, I think that goes back to, in part, to the you know, building web apps that uh, are resilient in all different locations and performant. Um, it also talks about, you know, think about using responsive design. So adapting to uh, adapting to a user's device, not not assuming they're on desktop, not assuming they're on mobile, but knowing that uh, users may look at our same application on a on their watch or on a giant 4K display and making decisions there. Also think it, it really maybe takes into consider some of those offline capabilities. Uh, and something I'm really passionate about is using a permanent readable URLs. So URL, thinking about the URL as part of the UI, making sure that people can easily navigate to sections that the URLs are clean and uh, can be carried forward and, and be almost a permanent part of our applications for users. And finally, your, your fourth principle is about how developers work with each other. And that not only includes code standards and good documentation, but also kind of interpersonal matters, right? Right. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I think about the way I learned to develop, and I, and I think this is not a unique experience. It was a very solitary experience for me. I was, became interested in building websites. I sort of learned to do that. I, I didn't go to school for computer science, but I think, um, you know, friends who had, they uh, and coworkers who had, they, you know, often did projects on their own. Uh, it can be a very, you know, you learn something on your own, you're not getting day-to-day feedback um, on, on that. Uh, but as soon as I went into the working or working world, and as my career progressed, it's a very social enterprise. I'm consistently uh, working on a shared code base with a large number of developers. We're um, contributing, we have standards that we need to follow, uh, ways that we need to collaborate so we're not stepping on top of each other. Uh, so really taking those inter- those interpersonal things into, into account and thinking about as development as a, as a social enterprise and as a means for uh, collaboration, really, when we do that, I think, I think it helps us both succeed, but also just be good colleagues, good coworkers, and, uh, and promote our industry in a really positive light. In your opinion, how important is open source to achieving the goals of ethical web development? I do think open source is, is really something that's really valuable. Uh, you know, none of us go a day without, if we interact with some technology, we're interacting with open source code in, in some way. Um, so the modern world has been largely built on this idea of us giving a lot of our work away or building on top of other people's work. So I think as we consume that, it's really important for us to attempt to contribute to that when we can. And contribution may be code contributions, but it also might just be filing issues, um, being a good steward of the open source community, so promoting other people's work. I know you know there's a lot of different ways to contribute to open source, but I think approaching it in a way that uh, is open, that is encouraging for people to, to join in and uh, allows work to be built upon really benefits all of us because it lets us build build on top of that, build on top of that, and keep making better and better uh, web applications and software applications. So, Adam, can you talk about some of the projects you're currently working on at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and maybe some of the open source tools that you've developed for the Bureau? Sure. Uh, So, I work at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB for short. Uh, It's a relatively new government agency that was formed out of the uh, financial crisis of the uh, around 2000. It was formed around 2011, 2012. And our goal is to really protect the uh, protect consumers. So provide educational resources and also to the American consumer while also providing tools for the CPB to do research or to provide tools for the industry at large. 
so we we have a, a large number of things that that all encompasses. So we have a pretty sizable web development team, and we have our website as consumerfinance.gov. There's a large number of consumer-based tools that live on that website, such as one called Owning a Home, which is a completely open source tool that uses mortgage data to allow people to compare mortgage rate offers. Uh, we have one called Paying for College, where folks can kind of see the college expense options and how, how Paying for College can, can, use, can be done. There's a great knowledge base of questions on all, a whole large number of uh, financial topics. And all of these things, the website itself and all of the tools that are built on top of it are all open source. So our open source work is at, on all, hosted all on GitHub. So github.com slash CFPB. We work completely in the open. So as much as possible, all of our work is done through public contributions to GitHub. So we're consistently day in, day out making contributions to open source code, uh, both at CFPB, but also, um, you know, we all, we encourage our team to contribute to to the larger open source community as necessary. Um, so we we really um, value open source and think that that brings an extra level of transparency to the work that we do. Uh, I believe we were the first government agency to accept a pull request from from the public, and that took place in, in 2011. That's great. Um, I also want to touch on your video course on modern front-end development. So uh, what are some of the techniques and best practices for modern front-end development? Sure. Uh, so that video course really walked through building a, I saw it as a opportunity to look at how you can transition from someone who knows HTML, CSS, and maybe a little bit of JavaScript to really being a front-end developer. So going from someone who can build websites to someone who can confidently call themselves a developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we looked a lot at running build processes, which has become an integral part of the front-end development lifecycle. We talked a lot about uh, code structuring. So how do you structure your codes? It's reusable. And that was done without the aid of any type of framework, but really it, it was taking the idea that frameworks bring to it so that you could then go off and learn a specific framework if needed. Uh, I think that sort of foundational JavaScript knowledge is, is really useful. Bringing in testing, so writing tests both for unit tests for JavaScript as well as writing automated testing for application functionality. Also, you know, building CSS when we're writing CSS using CSS preprocessors like LESS or SAT. So uh, writing CSS that in the simplest way possible while using those those types of preprocessing techniques. I think that's one of the things that's really exciting about development. It's all these things together. Uh, you have you know templating and writing HTML. You have uh, writing structured JavaScript, writing structured CSS, and they're all really different activities. But you can bring you bring those three things together to build these really complex and wonderful user interfaces. Well, Adam, this has been great. If our listeners want to find out more about you and what you're working on, where should they look? Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I probably the easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Adam D Scott. Um, also on on GitHub at a Scott One. Okay. Adam Scott, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Once again, you can access Adam Scott's ebooks on ethical web development and his video, Introduction to Modern Front-End Development, on Safari. O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform will have links to these items in the show notes that accompany this episode. And if you like this podcast, we invite you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can do that on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.